All right, so what Allison and I thought we would do is try to present where we are with a slightly different spin, because a number of you, I think, are already somewhat familiar with the pilot project. So we're going to focus on implementing, um, and specifically implementing in primary care. But the theme is going to actually be the case of the missing CPM pilot project. So hopefully we're going to unravel this mystery across our discussion this morning. Brief background to orient those of you who are not up to speed on the pilot project. Cardiovascular disease, as you know, greatest killer in the Western world and also one of the most preventable. So there have been over 100 SNPs identified that are associated with um, elevations in risk for cardiovascular disease. In clinical medicine, we know that providing risk assessment to patients um, incorporates a number of potential risk factors, but has not really focused on the genetic side and specifically hasn't focused on uh, SNPs. And so, the most highly validated of the SNPs associated with cardiovascular risk is 9P21. So Allison, with her background and interest in behavior change as well as interest in genetic medicine, and Alex with his interest in behavioral um, changes within these chronic conditions, and myself, so I'm coming at this as a, as a psychologist, Allison um, with a nursing background and Alex with a medicine background. We also know that there are behavioral interventions such as health coaching that can help patients change their behavior. And that those behavioral changes then of course affect clinical outcomes, which affect morbidity, which affect mortality. So we were interested in the question of what happens if we provide patients in a standard risk assessment with additional information about their genetic profile, specifically 9P21, and we combine that with a health coaching intervention. What are the um, cumulative benefits of having, in addition to a standard risk assessment, the genetic piece, or the coaching, or both? And so, Allison's going to describe to you the layout of the pilot study and <coughs> sort of the key to sort of how it works, and then we're going to focus on the implementation issues. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, some of you have seen this before when we described originally our plans for this pilot project, but just to quickly refresh memories, um, what we were interested in doing was looking at patients who have at least one risk factor for cardiovascular disease which is a majority of the clinic population. And so we look at them to screen them based on those initial risk factors, things like blood pressure, past lipid levels, or recent lipid levels, I should say, um, glucose tolerance, waist circumference, and BMI. So we're using those as initial screeners, and then we're moving in, if they are interested in participating, to randomizing them to one of four groups. We picked four groups because we wanted to be able to see the incremental effects that we might observe as we added more to the um, interventions. In other words, what is the effect with just a standard risk assessment alone, which in Alex's group's prior work with type 2 diabetes and providing standard risk assessment versus one that's augmented with genetic information, has shown that there is some benefit with just a standard risk assessment alone. And the interesting part of that is, are we really doing a standard risk assessment in primary care, or is this actually not usual care and it's something additional to that. 
So we're incorporating standard risk assessment using a Framingham risk score to review clinical risk factors and non-modifiable risk factors like family history that are part of Framingham. The second group would get health coaching plus that standard risk assessment. So following their risk visit, they would also receive um, health coaching by telephone with approximately 12 sessions over um, a three-month period with biweekly uh, phone calls with the health coach to support them in their goals for behavioral change. The third group would receive the genetic risk information plus the standard risk assessment. We'll look at what that entails um, on the next slide. And then the fourth group would receive all three interventions or levels of intervention to be able to look at any incremental changes in effects. The major outcomes that we're um, looking at, the primary outcomes are behavioral, diet, and exercise. The secondary outcomes are their metabolic changes that would influence their risk. So the standard risk assessment would look something like this, um, color-coded to indicate their level of risk, and reviewing the standard risk factors um, in the Framingham risk score. So as a sample, you can see that this patient has a pretty moderate level of risk um, on all factors except for smoking, because they don't um, smoke. And so their calculated Framingham risk score with these factors would be 13%, putting them at, as I said, an intermediate or moderate risk. The literature that supports the addition of the 9P21 results to augment this um, is primarily by Bratbauer et al., who did some work looking at how the risk reclassification affects the um, Framingham risk score. Primarily, it moves people into, um, correctly reclassifies people into those intermediate risk ranges, which is of benefit clinically because then we can um, potentially intervene earlier with um, secondary prevention for those we know are at risk instead of um, moving people into the very high or the very low risk categories. And so with um, the 9P21 testing, um, we'll be looking at two um, potential risk alleles that could be present. And so in this case, showing the upper extreme of two out of two high-risk alleles present on a test result would add one point to the Framingham risk score, which in this case shifts up to an 18% risk. If the patient has one of two high-risk alleles, then their Framingham score does not change at all, according to this algorithm. And if they have zero of two high-risk alleles, then their Framingham risk score actually goes down by a point. What does that 18% mean in terms of risk? 18%, if you look at Framingham risk categories, puts them into an intermediate high risk group. That means 18% risk of a cardiovascular disease or cardiac event in the next 10 years, according to the Framingham score that we chose. It's for the 10-year risk. Mm -hmm. Is it similar in gender, too? Is the Framingham score for women particularly gives you a low squirrel? Uh, yeah. We have to look, this, this reclassification is similar, but the um, Framingham score, obviously, we have to calculate it based on gender if we're following their algorithm. There are, al there are actually multiple Framingham scores using right. different data sets. Some predict two-year outcome, mm -hmm. five-year outcome, ten-year outcome. We're using the ten-year. Yes, yeah, mm -hmm. right, we're using the ten-year. But some are more focused on all cardiovascular mm -hmm. disease. Some are focused on only specific, like MI. So it depends on what outcome of interest you are, but we're using the one that's been most commonly studied. But if we see a, wo a woman who has this, can we say that their risk increases 
18 percent. Oh, you mean with the allele? Yeah, oh, with the allele. Yeah. Uh, I don't mean uh, this to indicate that it goes up by 18 percent. It increases their total. This is a sample case. So for this patient who started with a 13 percent 10-year risk, they move up to an 18 percent risk. And it depends on their um, starting risk because the alleles add a point or subtract a point potentially from the Framingham score, and then you have to use the Framingham algorithm to convert it to their percent risk. Mm -hmm. So it won't always shift somebody by 5%, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. That was just a sample case. Question? Uh, does others, I don't remember the case with 1921, but are, is it the same SNPs that are risk SNPs irrespective of race or ethnicity? Or do you have to consider that since you'd be looking at a pretty broad that's a good question. Um, the 9P21, I believe, has been valid, that we chose that because it's the most highly validated, and I believe, across ethnicities. Okay. Mm -hmm. At least in Caucasian and African American, I know a lot of them, as you probably well know, have not been validated across all races and ethnicities. It's true of men and women. Mm -hmm. It's true of both. Okay. All right, so every good mystery has a backstory. So here's the backstory for this particular pilot project. You might remember in October of 2010 that the Center for Personalized Medicine announced round one of a, and put out an RFA, and I applied for it in November. In December, they announced round two. They culled down the proposals and asked a, you know, a, bit of, a few of us to put in a more developed proposal. Also in December, I got a lot smarter and teamed up with Allison <laughs> and teamed up with Alex um, and moved the, my interest in integrative health coaching to be also integrating with some work that Allison is leading um, with an R01 that she's been developing um, and has actually submitted to the National Institute of Nursing Research. Um, I will tell you more about that at the end. Um, and so we also realized this is a great opportunity to get some pilot data that was needed for that um, particular study. So in January, we were awarded the RFA, uh, the, um, the pilot, and then Allison began working on the IRB immediately in February. In March, Ruth, not knowing that she didn't have to do it all by herself when she was involved in the CPM, begins to organize a team. Allison continues working on the IRB. Tim then helps explain that actually CPM is developing a matrix organization, and so we reorganized the team with a lot more help from CPM. Allison continues working on the IRB. In May, we have some personnel shifts, and the team reorganizes again, and Allison continues working on the IRB. In June, we submit to the IRB, feeling quite confident that we will start enrolling in August. So the first quarter of this fiscal year, as we're awaiting the IRB approval, we further develop the patient flow and we begin to understand more in depth by working with Dana and Mary Lou. I don't know if you guys know them. I want to raise your hands. These are our, these are our plants in uh, Scott's practice and the Pickens Road practice as well that have been absolutely instrumental in helping to make things work and we're going to get into that. Um, we organized the team again just for fun. Allison <laughs> continues working closely with the IRB and Alex and Allison start developing the contract with Medco. Simultaneously, the validation of this assay begins. Second quarter, as we wait for the IRB approval, 
We fine-tune the patient flow. Actually, this was incredibly helpful because the way the clinics run is, of course, slightly different. And so beginning to really understand what it's like and incorporating knowledge from the various other projects that CPM um, is doing within the primary care practices. We further develop the CRFs, start working on the contract amendments, TEGI, managing um, the contract amendments with Medco. In October of 2011, the prime suspect enters the scene. Dun, da, da, da. So, Mr. IDE on the scene, but DTMI detective arrives just in time to help us solve the case of the missing pilot project, Bruce Burnett. So Detective Burnett unravels key clues for us. The first clue, what is an investigational device exemption? which is very important to understand. The second, what is NSR? And we're going to talk about that. And the third, are there other regulatory culprits that could be lurking behind the scenes causing the missing project? So, what's an IDE? Well, clinical investigations of devices that have not yet been approved for marketing have to either have an approved IDE or show, demonstrate that they are exempt from this particular regulation around IDEs. And in order to be exempt, all of the following criteria have to be met. So the device, if it's being used for diagnostics, that is, in order to be exempt, it has to be non-invasive, it has to not require a sampling procedure that is invasive, that presents significant risk to the subject, it has to, by design or by intention, um, not introduce energy into the participant's body. And it has to be a, a diagnostic procedure that could be confirmed by another well-validated procedure. Okay? So the question is, do we meet in our study IDE standards? And the answer is, no, but the reason, this is your chance to join the detective squad. Now, those of you who know the inside story can't answer, but those others of you might think about what you've just heard. Why might we not? Shall I go back to the requirements? Mm -hmm. Is it the last one? Yes, <laughs> the last That's one. That's right, you may join Detective Burnett. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Which is no something that also gets in the way of figuring it out. I say that a lot about regulatory. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Do you want me to rephrase or are you just joking? What do you think it says? I think you it do says. Do you need validation or you cannot have validation? You, you have to, in order to be exempt, yeah. you, have to ha you have to be able to validate that what your device is showing diagnostically. So it's redundant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, note that phrase for the next <laughs> slide. <laughs> okay. All right, so what is NSR? And Allison's gonna talk so about So along those lines, we, we, after realizing that we weren't exempt from the IDE, which we thought we were and submitted as if we were, um, we 
You're going to talk about how we follow through with the training and everything, right? Or should I mention? Yeah. Okay. Oh, so slides out of order. Sorry. That's okay. So um, the next step is that we had to address the fact that we, it did require some form of IDE, which ended up being an abbreviated IDE. It didn't have to progress to the FDA um, for various reasons. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of confusion, I guess I would say, about that at this point, And Bruce can probably elaborate further. But what I've read is that. Um, there are very few tests such as this in genomics that have moved forward to the FDA for the full process of investigational device approval. Um, probably, I think the latest number is like 11 to 13 tests. It's very, very small that actually went through the full process and have gone to market. And so the confusion is that the FDA started to realize that um, a lot of these devices or tests in genomics were being utilized in research and could potentially go to market eventually um, and we're sitting at the IRB level. And that made me understand more fully where this confusion and the increased regulation was coming from. That, that their realization that a lot of this is going on with IRB oversight but nothing above that was quite concerning to them. And so that creates more of an, a heightened regulatory environment for doing this kind of work. So the second step was that we had to then show the IRB, since it wasn't going to go to the FDA, we had to prove to the IRB that it was a non-significant risk study, that there was no significant risk to the patient by participating in this and using something with an abbreviated um, investigational device approval. Um, so non-significant risk, we found out, means that um, the devices have not been cleared for marketing, but they have to have an IDE approved just by the, the institutional IRB, which um, we went through that process. And if it is significant risk, then it goes to the FDA for approval before use. So the IRB has to make that um, somewhat subjective determination of whether it represents significant risk. And again, there's some heightened concern about this in light of recent developments. I left um, it out of the backstory. So, um, <laughs> so significant risk presents a potential for serious risk to either the health, the safety, or the welfare of the subject. So, Quick so yeah. you're not really making clinical decisions based on this. Right, which is what we decided to say. <laughs> um, and, and that is actually why we did not think we needed an IDE in the first place. Okay. But, like I said, heightened regulatory environment. Okay. Um, well, I mean, at some level, if, if one of the controls is you have this genetic information mm -hmm. and your score goes up, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then you are modifying the score. Mm -hmm. But that's the patient. That's not yeah. your well, decision as a clinician. But they're supposed to judge how it affects the patient. You've told them your score has gone up. And they can ask for guidance. Exactly. That's and then when you tell them their weight and blood pressure. It's yeah. exactly yeah. how we phrased it. Yeah. And, and I mean, for them, it's, it's the implication, right? How they're perceiving. I mean, that's something about this yeah. personalized medicine, right? How they're perceiving the information and how they're taking it in. Mm -hmm. And what do they walk away with diagnostically in their mind as the understanding of their mm -hmm. risk level? So that was always what I had assumed it came back to was our clinical decisions made exactly. based, based on, on the outcome. And mm -hmm. it was exactly the clinical decision is definitely one component, but right. it's also the risk that the FDA says yeah. with mm -hmm. an error. So if mm -hmm. say the your your score goes up mm -hmm. and they react in some way, or the score goes down and they react in some way, then mm -hmm. okay. potential error associated with that All information. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So okay. diagnostically, yeah. I, I know it's, it's it's a very gray area, but it's. Mm -hmm. Uh, we've been told to be very mm -hmm. careful by the FDA about anything to do with genomics or genetics. Okay. 
And, and technically, they could make um, decisions with their provider based on this information. I mean, if you get right down to it, they may um, choose uh, more aggressive preventive therapies based on an increased risk. So it could be utilized. Mm -hmm. It just depends on what the patient does with the information. Mm -hmm. okay. So we see their point. So is genetic risk factors um, treated differently by the IRB and the FDA? Um, well, again, that's a big discussion that we've had. Even though this genetic is a single uh, SNP mm -hmm. that they're doing, but again, it's the it's, I think people have accepted the premium risk score for some time, and there's lots of clinical data. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and the validation of whether adding this truly does should change mm -hmm. the. I think that's the, the mm -hmm. question and the. Mm -hmm. The, the what's not be confirmed by some other, and maybe over time. Right, that so that could evolve. Yeah. So the argument being that the SNP data is not as validated yeah. as the yeah. genetic data, mm -hmm. and that's where the concern comes, not just because it's a genetic Yeah, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. okay. yeah. Yeah, we had another um, um, DPAX yeah. study, mm -hmm. the statin yeah. study. Yeah. Um, had to go the, the FDA actually said mm -hmm. that they consider that not requiring an IDE. Mm -hmm. Even though the IRB had felt the risk was mm -hmm. high, mm -hmm. asked them to submit an IDE, and the FDA said no. We still consider this a diagnostic study, um, but it can be overseen by the IRB, and not it's not a high risk. Mm -hmm. And again, just a and it's always a constant discussion. I can tell you at IRB meetings too when we're just when we're trying to make decisions on these, and and I think it's heightened awareness on all types of diagnostic or clinical decision making types of testing because. Similar questions have now started to bubble up in making those decisions about other biomarkers, other types of biomarkers, and other diagnostic tests like radiologic tests that people might be using in their studies. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of heightened awareness across the board. Do you think this is worsened by the 23 and because they're doing the same thing, like they're giving mm -hmm. an unvalidated risk? Well, I think that seems to have started the FDA's due, concern. Due sensitivity yeah. is mainly due to the, the clinical trials yeah. that yeah. you we're most sensitive. But the FDA is pretty sensitive according to yeah. what's out there about those yeah. things. Yeah. Although, interestingly, the physicians are free to use this as long as they don't stop it. Exactly. Right. You can use it in practice, but practice just not in the study. <laughs> that's like art and science. <laughs> I mean, really. That's yeah. It's a mix. Probably. As long as you don't think Significant risk, um, these are the, the more detailed definitions of what would constitute significant risk. So in reviewing that, this, what we did is try to address how our study was not meeting any of these four criteria for significant risk and submitted that for approval. So um, if it's an implant or presents substantial or potential serious risk to the health, safety, or welfare of the subject, um, our test is non-invasive, it's a saliva test. Um, we, we did discuss um, potential psychological risks related to the outcomes of the increased or decreased risk of the test results um, and how we would address those. Um, if the test is purported to um, be used for supporting human life or presents the potential for, again, serious risk to the subject, um, is substantially important in diagnosing, curing, or treating disease, which we discussed it in the context of risk discussion rather than diagnostic. Um, and then otherwise presents potential for serious risk. So using this more detailed definition, we resubmitted addressing all four of these to say why it did not present serious risk to the subjects um, and got approval for 
that. So we did not have to, we did not meet the, non, we did meet the non-significant risk requirements. We did not have to go to the FDA. Um, and so the outcome is that it was approved um, and it does not pose significant risk. We were able to substantiate that. So following the IDE approval, um, so now that we understood this, we did have to follow through and make sure we met those abbreviated IDE requirements. Just as an FYI, we included those here. Um, we're trying to help Bruce educate people. <laughs> um, we had the IDE approved by the IRB and then um, did not have to move forward with FDA approval, but it does involve um, PI training. So all of us underwent training about these abbreviated IDE requirements um, with Bruce through the DTMI, and they are the group that does that. Um, we went over the requirements for how the study needs to be monitored for regulatory monitoring and what we need to report and record, including adverse events. Um, and the device has to be labeled for investigational use only. And I have to say that going through the requirements was somewhat difficult. Bruce was really helpful in helping us pick out which ones apply to us and which ones don't. If you read through the whole document, a lot of them depend on what type of device you're using. Um, and since we were using um, basically a saliva sample kit to send to Medco, um, there was nothing that would be necessarily sitting around and viewed by others in the clinic setting. Um, so we don't have to necessarily label them as investigational device only. Um, but for example, it does apply if you're using some kind of ultrasound machine, something that would be sitting in the clinic setting on a regular basis. All right. So the next challenge we faced with regulatory approval was our investigational language. Um, I thought this was important to bring up since so many of us are potentially involved in submitting things along these lines, and we had to go back and change a lot in terms of our documents to meet the requirements. My initial reaction to this, and I sent it out to Ruth and Alex very quickly, was, <laughs> They are messing with our study. <laughs> um, so does it impact scientific questions was my big concern. Um, if you think back to our study design, our main goal was to evaluate whether adding this genetic risk information, augmenting or adjusting the Framingham risk score, and then adding a behavioral intervention would impact behavioral outcomes. And my concern was that if we add so much investigational language, that the genetic test result is basically negated completely in the mind of the patient, then what have we really gained by doing the study? So that was a really big challenge. After we panicked a little bit, we looked at the language that they had suggested and we ended up accepting all of it and moving forward, hoping that this will still work out in terms of the study design. But these are some examples of what they wanted added to the documents. Um, uh, in terms of providing the actual risk results to the patient, which is done with a provider, um, explaining them to them. They changed our script so that they had to give this long explanation in both the consent and then in the risk visit about what investigational means, the fact that the tests we're using is, um, the tests that are now available are still investigational. Um, and what you see when you look at this in track changes when you receive all the documents is the word investigational about a hundred times in your uh, documents. Is this the consent that they were revising? Consent and the script for the uh, risk oh. counselor to go over the information with them. And the phone screen, didn't And the phone screen, yeah, for inviting people to participate. 
So that became an issue where, as I said, we have to meet these requirements, so we're hoping that we can still move forward without completely negating the potential effects that we might see with this, but still stay within um, the realm of protection of human subjects. Um, the thought did cross my mind at one point about that line in the IRB approval where you can ask for approval for um, subject deception, but we didn't go there. <laughs> we decided not to go there. <laughs> so, um, the, as Ruth mentioned earlier, the process was actually quite minor. The way that it comes back to you from the IRB is somewhat intimidating. Here's this list of regulations you need to meet. Here's the process, and you all need to be trained. Bruce's office makes that exceptionally easy to accomplish, so we were able to respond to that um, fairly quickly. Okay. Do you want this one? Sure. Okay, so we should then have IRB approval, wouldn't you think? <laughs> and we should be able to start enrolling. So who are the other culprits? And what else could be keeping them a sing study in hiding? So enter the picture of logistics in primary care. And this is actually going to be a, a, a lot of discussion because we uh, are incredibly grateful for the, all the work that had been done ahead of time that has ironed out and created amazing entrees into um, both of these primary care clinics, um, in large part because of Scott and Dana and Mary Lou and Alteji's work getting it in there. So the um, interesting issues that are just important to know about, the Primary Care Research Consortia is um, an organization of all the primary care practices. If you ask the PCRC, all the primary care practices are part of it. If you ask the individual practices, some are and some aren't. And so we continue to get conflicting information and have just decided to try to please both groups simultaneously <laughs> and let them figure that part out. Um, the site presentations and introductions has, I think, been a really important and useful part of that. And, and it's really helping both the staff and the physicians understand what it is we're trying to do and importantly, why there might be some benefit to them. You know, something that would be helpful to their patients or them as individuals or, um, some, their, or their staff. So one of the key things is, in terms of getting the physicians themselves involved, is making for scholarly opportunities. It's not that, you know, it's a requirement or a have to, but there are a number of physicians that are very interested in participating or having the option of being included on a, on a manuscript. And so what we offered um, to these two practices was the opportunity to help us develop a manuscript specifically around some of the implementation issues. Because as healthcare reform moves forward, the medical home model um, gets developed, et cetera, the implementation and implementation science is, a, is a, an enormous thing. Scott could probably write a textbook about that <laughs> at this point. So um, the other thing that is uh, of interest to these um, practices is to offer training or some kind of learning opportunities for staff. So they need to know about the study itself, but that's really to help us. You know, that's to like get us support like recruitment for us. But the learning opportunity here is also to understand what is the role of including genetic information into the risk assessment? What is the role of offering health coaching? How many patients are gonna you know, take us up on 
getting into the study, what are their perceptions going to be of both of these components? How well do these components synergize when they are added in? And then um, nominal fiscal support is useful. I'm sure huge fiscal support would be more useful. But, um, and the, interestingly, we have also learned that you have to do a little exploration about who it is you're supporting. So, um, you know, there are lots of organizations. You can support the PCRC. You can support individual practices. Often the individual practices need equipment and need, um, uh, you know, small funds to be able to do things in the practice that it's hard to get approval for at a higher level. Um, so to have like a small discretionary fund that we can contribute to it can be useful. And um, all of these things in terms of like getting people to site presentations for these learning opportunities um, and also to teach about the study itself are often augmented significantly by the presence of food. So um, <laughs> feeding people lunch, Ergo. very good strategy. Ergo, right, <laughs> exactly. Drug companies can't do it anymore, but we can do it. Um, so I think that it would be useful just to brainstorm a little bit. Um, Scott, I would be interested in what you had to say and Teji in your, in your experience and you know, getting, reaching out both to Pickens and, and Pickett, Mary Lou and Dana, what you guys have, have seen, the things that we heard at the site presentations that really were key were one, that everybody knew Mary Lou and the people that um, Dana worked with, you know, they knew her and they already were seen as credible, reliable, there to be helpful. So that was just a huge hurdle to start with. And the other thing was having our genetic risk counselor, Mike Scott, um, be an incredibly beloved person. In the first trial, I mean, he had befriended the staff like nobody's business. And so we just as you talk, every time you mention his name, people in the room go, oh, Mike. I mean, he just truly, excuse me, um, and that, I, I think, is really important in terms of bridging the relationships. So what, Allison, you want to add anything to that? Or Mary Lou, Dana, Scott, I really would be interested in some discussion because the whole implementation of like, sort of how you get this in. I was, I, I honestly, I think I was surprised that um, these, I, I recognize the fact that these discussions don't come up often. I think it's probably something we all in doing this type of research need to continue to discuss in terms of what are the incentives for um, clinics, providers, and staff to participate in this process. Um, we, we just threw out there the scholarly opportunities in one of the meetings that we had in the practice at Pickett Road, and two providers approached us after the meeting to ask how they could continue to stay involved and help with writing. Two so of the I eight? Think, I mean, yeah, two of eight. So I think it was, um, that was a little bit surprising to me, but it was really a pleasant surprise, because I think as much as we can do that, we should be doing that type of thing. Um, and so I think sharing that as a, a helpful for people who are moving forward in that area. I have a question. So, I mean, this is probably as much for Scott as is. If you're doing these studies, is that perceived as something beneficial to the people in your practice that you are out there trying to find new and better ways? I mean, if you think about why Duke gets people coming from all over the world to come here, it's because they're not just giving the approved drugs; they're doing new and novel things where there is no really best practice yet, and so. If you're saying I'm trying these different, I'm enrolling patients and their subjects in clinical studies, is that viewed as a, 
as a positive to continue in your practice? When you say viewed, I guess viewed by the patient. Now, as, uh, for the patients, yes. Yes. The patients really do appreciate coming to Duke, having conversations about new studies. I think our patients have been very engaged yeah. with this introduction. I think when you look at what uh, rewards a practice, it is still visit volume and it's work units. And if you're going to spend time even coming to this meeting, it, it's an opportunity cost, right? I mean, I am out of clinic. I'm not seeing four patients, so I'm losing $800 of revenue by being here. But and it's a good meeting. I, <laughs> I, I, keep, I, I continue to run into that issue as a manager to say, okay, that's nice you're doing that, Scott. But, you know, we're, we're under pressure to fill these beds, and we're under pressure to increase our market share. And if you're not there seeing patients, Duke system cannot do that. Yeah, absolutely. So it gets to really, really leadership at a high level supporting this concept of the, you know, the triple, triple A, really, you know, research and clinical care and, and education. And, and the way the reimbursement structures are scheduled, they don't reward this financially. So you get a personal reward, right. you know, being part of abstracts and get accepted, being part of multidisciplinary teams, kind of broadening your, your uh, experiences. But it is very hard from a business standpoint to make this argument. I think your point, Ruth, about getting people engaged in the clinic setting, plopping, you know, having Mary Lou present every day and having her connected with the nurses and the team, mm -hmm. and knowing Mike Scott was in our practice, and mm -hmm. converting his role into this research role. Everybody got comfortable with those relationships, That's and once it's embedded and rooted in there, it's very hard to get rid of. Exactly. So it, take, it takes leadership at the clinic level to kind of say, okay, these people are here to stay, I'm going to protect them. You know, they're not going to get thrown out of our office. And it does take a lot of energy and a lot of political will to do that because it may not be coming from above to execute that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's good to hear people want to be part of scholarly opportunities. I think many of us in mid-career, you know, are getting beyond just about the visit volume. We want to kind of broaden ourselves and, and leave something and, and learn. So I think that's good to hear. The fiscal support, you know, we, we've had these little thousand dollar five thousand dollar buckets that we could contribute to a discretionary account so the initial thought for how we would spend that money in the clinic would be to give something that would add value to the docs they wanted an ipad that they could use with the patient they wanted an ophthalmoscope they could put on the wall that got mixed okay it got yeah, mixed at the high level at the high level yeah, okay. above, above me i'll ask you after <laughs> but, but it got mixed because they said well we don't want this, we don't want Pickett Road to be seen differently than any other practice in the network by doing these studies, rewarding doctors, if other practices don't have the same opportunity to participate in the studies. So my argument was, what well, everybody does. This primary care research consortium, everybody should be able to sign up and participate. But there is that concern about keeping everybody equal and equally competitive if you're out of Wake you know, uh, County, you know, north of Durham, how do they get the equal opportunity to compete for these studies as we are on the Duke Corps. And so there is a very big sensitivity about keeping everything equal when you try to reward individual providers or individual practices for this type of stuff. So it's a barrier. So how, what were some of the strategies that worked for, I mean like for example, you know, Mary Lou actually has a dedicated space that somebody has to pay for, and the study's not paying for it. I don't know if the center is paying for it or your practice ate that cost. Yeah, I just got a Put Mary Lou in there and say, you know, unless anybody tells you to move, right. you don't move. Right. And I'm kind of running interference with right. her. Uh, so, yeah. 
because that's actually been really important. Like at Pickett, at, at Pickens, for example, you know, Dana's been incredibly flexible, and she works out of a closet, and she can't, <laughs> you know, and and has, you know, there is a shelf there, but she actually can't even leave stuff on the shelf and guarantee it'll be there next time. And so, you know, I mean, it's just like the needs for the space. And interestingly, as we were having the meeting with the actual clinic um, at Pickens, Robin Burnett, right? Is that her last name? Yeah. Burnett, yeah. Um, has been appointed as this sort of um, head of research within that practice. And she's dynamite. I don't know if anybody in here knows her. She's just really fabulous and cares a lot about research and cares a lot about patient care and is enthusiastic and excited about stuff. And then they have a new um, manager who's trying, practice manager is trying to, you know, figure out what's what, um, who has been very supportive to us once all the, you know, hoops were jumped through. But in the discussions and filling out the specific application that went directly to their practice, which looked quite similar to the one that went to the PCRC to get simultaneous <laughs> approval, um, what, you know, the thing that came up is, well, how are you going to pay for the space? And, you know, there's a, a per clinic visit that, you know, a charge per the use of the room and so forth. And so what they've done thus far is if we use this sort of shared closet space, it's sort of like multiple people are able to use it. It's not a dedicated space. So Dana's dedicated space is elsewhere. She goes over there when she can, but even like the risk counseling is going to have to happen off campus there. It's going to happen over at the nursing school. Yeah. The space that, we, that they have is um, in the IGSP inventory, and it is paid for. So ah. the Pickens, who's in Pickens? You must be windy. Oh. No, I'm no. Chris. Oh. Oh. So, um, so that space is on the IGSP inventory, a space that we're allocated for every year, and uh, the indirects on the grants or the awards paid for. So the clinics will make sure that that gets assigned to us. Maybe not where you're in a sharing mode, but even if there's a sharing mode, we'll get a percentage of whatever that share is, and it comes up on our inventory just like all our other wet lab resources. Okay, so I want to make sure I understand what you just said. So that, um, like in the star system or web general or whatever it is, that particular space that's being used is coded to? Yeah, Center for Personalized Medicine. Got it. In this case, or the CGSU. Okay, okay. Good to know. Yeah, they loan it to us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Is that okay. for just the office visits? Is that also Not for the, the office space? clinic visits, but for any space that Mary Lou and Dana use, it's, it's considered research support and it's coded that way. But not, we don't have any of the actual clinic rooms coded to us. And you do get the indirects? We don't. In an institute, oh. they don't flow to us, but okay. a department would. Okay. Um, so the right. School of Medicine Right. Yeah. That's why I asked. Cool. Okay. Any other thoughts about Minecraft? Dana or Mary Lou, do you want to comment about what you guys have noted? I think it's important just to be visible there, to have a presence in the lobby, mm -hmm. to um, have the relationship with the staff. Um, we've done things like DNA Day, where we have a lunch and Scott comes in and we do DNA Jeopardy. Oh. <laughs> you know, it makes people aware. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then they're more engaged in mm -hmm. helping the patients. Yeah, the one thing that is important is, I know it's great we get a lot of energy when we bring you guys over, you do the, the talk about the studies, but the, 
sustainability. Right. So, you know, you get this boom, and then, but after two weeks, if yeah. you did a quiz on yeah. what you yeah. talked about, people would forget. So there, yeah, I see like two or three days of a lot of good energy. I can't believe sometimes. So the other thing to think about is how you continue to kind of keep this. You know, with, with Mary Lou and Dana being present, that's obviously a reminder of these studies going on, but how do you kind of keep people fresh with the concepts? Yeah. Yeah. That's a study in itself, right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, it sounds like an often it's a critical issue yeah. in mm -hmm. terms of either continued enrollment or they're, right. they're, they're, they're tied to the, to the study. Yeah. I guess I mean, have we ever seen that where you know after you do a presentation does enrollment pick up and then mm -hmm. it'll be nice to kind of see if yeah. you could flatten it. Sure they they just said you know edges get sure. your sales are going up just because it becomes a yeah. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> a list in the break room or something of the ongoing studies. Yeah. So Mary Lou's put that up yeah. in the yeah. research. We have a little thermometer Customers. that says yeah. how we're doing on recruitment. Mm -hmm. So, but you know you got to you just got to keep people engaged. And as we're yeah. thinking about these studies, thinking about yeah. ongoing engagement, ongoing training, and, and refreshing is very important. Yeah. Well, and I do think, I mean, you know, the, this loosely falls under the emerging field of implementation science, but truly some of the next wave of, I mean, right now the research committee is looking at what are the key questions that need to get asked in terms of really moving this in at a, at a larger level. And I mean, a study like that would be really quite yeah. interesting. We yeah. did an update on the statin study and after with Deepak Bora, and after that I got a lot of referrals. Mm -hmm. But then one of the issues with that is some of the providers don't know what to do with information. Their person has the high-risk alleles. It's like, well, now what do I do? Yeah. And so I think continuing updates might mm -hmm. be valuable mm -hmm. so that yeah. they can raise their questions. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Now in a traditional pharmaceutical drug study, the Investigators get the money per patient involved. Is there a similar sort of per, you know, so this is, you're, you're in it and mm -hmm. you, you enroll five, you're no different mm -hmm. than someone who enrolls one. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if that's, because then the motivation for, a, you know, clinical investigators is that, well, if I yeah. enroll five, then I get five times the, mm -hmm. the fee. Right. Mm -hmm. Part of the problem, though, is reimbursing people yeah. who are chief employees. Mm -hmm. I see. Mm -hmm. Using non payroll mm -hmm. mortgage, you get into trouble that so you, but you could like pay the practice. Well, yeah, maybe yeah, 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 group purchases so that you can check out an iPad. But yeah, we, we had built a culture of that one lump payment around our quality improvement mm -hmm. because we didn't want to kind of get into this mindset that, you know, Joy did 85%, someone else did 90% to get along. We just divided the total dollars we got from our quality improvement divided by eight. Mm -hmm. So the culture was we're just going to raise everybody up. And that, that went over really well. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't big money. It was just like $8,000 we got as a bonus. wasn't big money but it was enough to kind of keep people engaged in the culture of quality improvement, and we tried to replicate that with this research lump fund, but, but there's some sensitivity. You know, one of the other issues this is, is bringing up, which actually um, we hadn't put on here, is how you set the budget and the funding up for the study, right? Because if you set it up that it's reimbursed on a per patient back to the practice, 
It's a very different run than if you set it up that here's the personnel that's going to do the study. So for example, one challenge that we've had is because of these unforeseen delays, you know, we are now into, well, we're about to be into our second year of funding, but we won't have any patients yet. And so for example, the person who is the health coach who's dedicated time on this, well, guess what? She's going on maternity leave and we got to figure out a way to coach people at, with no money, <laughs> you know? So there are these issues that it is, are really important. I mean, like the way DCRI does it is there's usually a startup program and a startup team. And so, you know, the good thing is that this is a feasibility trial. We were doing this for pilot. And that sort of building tension that I failed to build in here was that um, when Allison put the NINR study in the first time, the R01, they came back and said, great study. It was scored really well, but it wasn't funded. And the, the, one of the main issues was that we had preliminary data on genetic testing in these primary care clinics from Alex and Allison's work. And then we had preliminary data on doing health coaching with primary care patients not in these clinics, but we didn't have preliminary data of doing both. And so this was going to be, you know, let's work out all the kinks. And, and truly, thank goodness, because really there were a ton of kinks, right? Um, so anyway, I think, and, and that was one of the, the learnings, is really how we need to budget and strategize so that we'll be able to, um, you know, not run into that the next time. Well, what's the ultimate source of funding for this? The money's passing through the CPM, but what's coming from somewhere else? You mean for the pilot? The pilot. He's talking oh. about the overall pilot. Yeah, where's the money coming from? It's, that's the um, the actual startup money that the CPM received, and so from the institution. So from the yeah, yeah. from from mm -hmm. Duke, and so that's a portion of that money was set aside to help. Mm -hmm. And specifically from Zhao's office. Uh, uh, yes. I think yeah. yeah. I don't. It's not school medicine money. It's no, health no, system it's, money. It's health system yeah. money. Yeah. Just coming back to this pool, you know, I think you mentioned kind of the key point and that is millions of revenue also by the location right? It takes longer. Mm -hmm. um, it's this real dilemma of, you know, we're in an academic institution, but we're still measured by our productivity. Mm -hmm. right. And research is really interference with that mm -hmm. productivity. Mm -hmm. and do you mm -hmm. see any changes that are maybe, or is there another way yeah, you could move to Colorado, for example. So one of the things that we've, we've learned is um, putting it in the electronic workflow of physicians. One of the things we've added is we have a tasking system. So if I'm in there talking to a patient, I see that they're due for a cholesterol uh, med refill. I say, hey, by the way, we're doing this study. Let me... Are you interested? And they say yes. And right at the point of care, when I'm talking to the patient the computer, I can send an electronic note to Mary Lou, okay. and I can say, you know, contact this patient. So Mary Lou gets that. So then it's not like I have to add it to the end. It's actually built into the workflow. So I think we can find ways if we have the energy to do that to integrate it into the workflow. But make, I have to remember, okay, Mary Lou's contact. And what we found with other studies that are outside of the center where we don't have a Mary Lou in our practice, mm -hmm. we lose it. I cannot remember who mm -hmm. the promised yeah. study coordinator is. And the step of trying to find yeah, things you're not gonna you're rushed, you're already behind. Yeah. You, know, you move on to the next thing. Yeah. You don't know because you are measured by that. You don't, right. you know, unless you're very right. invested in the study. Exactly. Um, and you could have some little cheat sheets in your pocket, but then you end up having 10 or 15. It's still, yeah. it's still. And then you have to wait for that. And, and you really need to head to the next patient. Mm -hmm. 
Do you see any discussion that there's somehow more reimbursement for actually cooling? Or I'm not seeing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody's very. Yeah, we we know we can measure how many patients we see, what we charge for that visit, yeah. all this other stuff. You know, it could be done. It just requires the leadership to be sharing of these different buckets. Mm -hmm. Did the little cards on the PCs help or no? I, I think they were a good reminder. You know, we had talked yeah. about putting little advertisements around the computer screen of the studies and the contacts, and yeah, that's something right. we've got those floating around. Right. I, I think I think all of that helps. Stuff yeah. on the it's wall, the yes. stuff on the wall gets kind of messy, yeah. and you don't know <laughs> when. It, I, I like it tied it into the electronic workflow, and, and I think yeah. that's been a success. What we've done with DPEG study, uh, I think what we'll be able to do with these new studies, as long as they're built into the electronic workflow. Yeah. I mean, with with the with the health system, everything computerized. I mean, if you said cholesterol and you sort of searched and it said there's five studies, would that would that be something? And then you could just look through and either remind yourself that you're aware, and that might be a way to recommend. It's another little step to think about yeah. going to search for that. You know, that's why having just one cholesterol study in our practice is knowing who to contact. Yeah. So that's another sense to you know maybe that. Three studies is the max we can do, you know, uh -huh. just based right. on the workbook. But that's right. not bad. I mean, if uh -huh. all the 27 clinics did three studies, right. you know, right. study right. formulary. Right. 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 Is there actually anything that's used like that? Like, you know, clinical trials at Gov, but I, I, Yeah, I mean, I'm talking about having right. it accessible so that it pops up as yeah. a, as a right. problem. I mean, a little window yeah. that said, oh, there's three studies in, 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 with a name. And then you could. Yeah. As you said, if you, you need to integrate it into your workflow, it has to be almost seamless. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can't have so to go and click on something to find this. Yeah. Yeah. Just not enough time. It has to pop up. Right. So you put in your parameters of who's eligible, yeah. and as you're putting in your cholesterol or whatever, it searches that and pops up automatically. Right. So once you put in that. So that's, yeah, that's a whole system that needs to be. Right. Yeah. So you're right. screening the inclusion yeah. criteria as you're for right. Yeah. 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 Right. And then tells you, oh, by the way, there are, these studies are something this patient might be. Right. Different. So is it, is it noted now in the patient's record whether they're currently in a study? So that people are not going to. Right. Not unless somebody makes a note of it intentionally. The research consent note is in the medical record. Right. But it's under miscellaneous. Okay, well, let's quickly solve the mystery before we end. So, other culprits that are important to understand here um, are the communication about the genomic risk results and some contractual issues around the um, commercial labs. And mm -hmm. I'm going to let Alice, she's going to tell you, she, she tells you about this all the painful really parts. No, this is, <laughs> <laughs> um, this is actually really brief. We had comments from reviewers on the original grant and also from the IRB about who communicates the genomic risk results. So even though we had a provider, in this case, Mike Scott, who is a nurse practitioner, was in the clinic at the time of the former studies, um, has been trained in providing these results to patients by a genetic risk counselor. The questions came up of how can you provide these results without a genetic counselor? So we addressed that with both the reviewers of the original grant as well as um, the IRB in terms of the level of training. Um, the fact that it actually seems, and this is a whole other paper that I hope Mike and Mary Lou and everybody's going to help write, is on the relationship with the provider has um, seemed to make a difference in conveying those types of results where some patients may look at that in terms of issues of trust if they were seeing somebody who they had never seen before. Um, just depending on what kind of value and issues people assign to um, genomic results. 
And so we address those. The materials transfer agreement and the um, confidential non-disclosure agreement had to be arranged with Medco as a lab. Those things um, had been in place for prior studies, which made it a little bit easier for us to modify and communicate with them. So those are um, just about finished um, in terms of making arrangements with them. Uh, and then other issues with communication of genomic results for the research study were where are you going to put them? Will they, will they end up in the patient's medical record, which creates some level of concern at times for patients? Um, and then also, or, or will they only be in the research record? Because of the purposes of this particular study, we are actually only keeping them in the research record. When the results are conveyed to the um, patient by uh, Mike in this case, they are specifically told as part of that script that the results of their genomic tests will not be shared with anyone else. They won't be sent to their provider. They won't be sent to the health coach if they're in a health coaching group. One of the things we hope to be able to observe and glean from things like um, either record review or talking to providers or um, notes that the health coach has agreed to keep is who do they disclose it to? And does it become part of their overall risk conversation with those other people? And does it then become part of their overall goals and treatment plan? Or do they just consider the risk discussion as a broad risk discussion, which it is, based on clinical risk factors and potentially genomic test results, and just disclose their overall risk to those other players in terms of providers and the health coach? So we did, as I said earlier, modify our script for the risk counseling as much as you can script that kind of individual um, conversation um, to make sure that A, as you mentioned earlier, that it focuses on the many risks for heart disease, not just solely on genomic test results. It's very much structured so that it focuses on all um, relevant risk factors. That we focus on actionable risk reduction. So towards the end of the discussion with the risk counselor, there's a focus on Here's some more information about risk reduction in terms of diet, exercise, and other things that are helpful in terms of um, coronary heart disease. And then the health coach obviously ties onto that as well if they're in a health coaching group to follow up and support them in that. And then also adding that emphasis on the investigational nature of the testing. You know, Allison, with mm -hmm. the medical records, and, and Mary Lou has seen this, yeah. you know, with the, there is some leakage that can occur because right. the patient will come back and, and say, they say oh, yeah, I met with Mary mm -hmm. Lou and mm -hmm. I had this genetic mm -hmm. test done, and the provider will say, patient had participated in a gene mm -hmm. therapy study. Yes. I'll show some of these totally examples. Just a totally different thing. The leakage, even though mm -hmm. you, you, know, you got it tight, yep. I mean, those conversations mm -hmm. will occur outside mm -hmm. of that, and mm -hmm. some of that gets documented in the yeah. note. So we, We're interested to see how much of that comes back yeah. to the provider and what they document. Um, and, and the other thing is we had to add to the consent, I should say, that the, that the um, results, they may disclose the results, and they may be discussed with their provider, and the provider might note it. So we didn't say it will never end up in your medical record, but we did try to make it clear they didn't have to disclose it. And then from a like methodological standpoint, the providers aren't blinded. Mm -hmm. You know, the stati statisticians are blinded. The, I can't remember who else blinded. Who else? I think in the pilot only is the statisticians. Yeah, the statisticians. Um, so it's it's not it's not the pro, you know the provider isn't going to have a, a direct influence on the behavioral outcome measures and absolutely an influence, but through the patient mm -hmm. since they're self-reported. A mm -hmm. um, couple of quick topics for probably later discussion might be issues around materials transfer agreement and some of the conversations that you therefore have to have about intellectual property and what where is the assay coming from, who contributed to the validation of the development, and who, 
who does that remain with, and then um, confidential disclosure to ensure confidentiality of our main concern was confidentiality of patient data. These are going to the lab in an um, de-identified manner with a study number on them and those kinds of things. I have a question. I thought mm -hmm. the, the informed consent is part of the medical record, but it's part of the research record. It's part, it's of, part of the research record research. only. What were you referring to? It's part of the medical record. It's a requirement that the consent form and the consent notes are being sent to the medical record. So that's what Mary Lou was saying goes in the miscellaneous section of the so it is visible at some level in the medical record. If you click on the right tab. <laughs> <laughs> so, actually, one quick question. Do you have to do this as a approved test, or is it just a research investigational use test? Um, it's a research investigational use test being performed by a CLIA-certified laboratory. But we didn't have to have the test CLIA-certified. Okay. No. But do you think the CLIA lab was crucial? Um, you know, we didn't necessarily, we had, um, worked with them in particular before on other research-related protocols, and so that made so making like the connection easier and more natural, and that's why it occurred. Mm -hmm. But I have to say that we did make the case in the grant that since these aren't tests that can be readily ordered yet in, in places like the Duke Clinical Lab, that mm -hmm. by using a CLIA-certified lab, that we were kind of making that connection to a place that at least would be relevant for implementation in mm -hmm. the long term. Mm -hmm. um, so it's adding to the clinical relevance of it. I'd be willing to bet that in terms of NIH funding, that's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, having the clip because they can't. Yeah, there was a way to do it. For the purposes, though, you don't need, you shouldn't need a clear test. Right. It's not really exactly. It's not the test, but and because it's not marketable. It's good to work with the clear lab because they mm -hmm. have the capabilities to certify. Exactly. The test. In the future. Well, and some administrator gets to take the piece of paper that says the lab is certified and put it in a folder yeah. and check that off. I mean, truly. So um, we worked out logistics with them as well, just really briefly. Communication of results, how they would come back to us, how we would send the samples. One of the issues that came up in a prior study was that the lab that was utilized required us to batch them. That does sort of interrupt your time flow if you're looking at sequential interventions. Um, but we've been really lucky in terms of, um, knock on wood, <laughs> things working out with them in, in the sense that they have a very quick turnaround time of turning around the results to us and we don't have to send a certain number of samples per batch. So I it, think if Mike Gatto doesn't do this test, is that, did you talk to him about We had, I, I believe we had conversations a long time ago. It was before you got here, so um, that was quite a while ago now. Mm -hmm. So know that now that we've addressed all of those, we are sure to be able to bring you guys data in the hopefully very near, near, near future. <laughs> um, so this is just illustrating the multidisciplinary team as investigators for this current application. Also wanted to mention again, we just resubmitted the R01 application to show that we have jumped through all these hoops for the pilot, which initially we thought the reviewers were crazy saying that we needed, and now I have to eat those words and say, thank you, God, because we have had an opportunity with less pressure to work out all of the issues. So keeping our fingers crossed for that resubmission, the Air Force BAA calls that came out a little while ago on personalized medicine, we submitted an application to them to work with them um, in terms of instituting this with Alex's type 2 work um, for genomic risk um, in military populations. And we're hoping to hear any day now from them um, in looking at this further. So we're taking it as a good sign that they emailed Allison and said, would you guys be willing to involve a few of our investigators in your study? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I said, oh, definitely. That was a very quick response. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Thank you for asking. <laughs>
the one other um, lesson learned that I didn't make very clear, it's the, the whole seed, you know, material transfer agreement stuff, incredibly helpful to have um, Tudgy in that, and also incredibly helpful to save your email. Because what I have noticed is every six months or so, let me remind you of the last email that we had. Because there's just, you know, it takes so long and people forget over time what the agreement has been. So. All right. Well, thank you guys very much.